Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Welcome to the second episode of Design Your Life, from Lego to skyscrapers, the life of an architect, where I'll be speaking to some of the most influential architects who are shaping our cities and the way that we live. We'll go behind the facade to understand what inspires them, how they juggle business and family life, and the responsibility that comes with designing the places, cities, and destinations that we live, work, and play in. In this episode, I speak with a 3XN partner and head of the Sydney practice, Fred Holt. We discuss his journey from growing up on a ranch in California to leading the Sydney office of one of the world's most well-respected architectural practices. We discuss the idea of disassembling rather than demolishing buildings, which can contribute to far more environmentally friendly outcomes. Hey Fred, thanks for thanks for coming today to design your life. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really cool to have you here, man. Um, we've known each other for a few years now, not that personally, but through uh, working on uh, AMP Capital's new key quarter down at Circular Key in Sydney, key quarter tower. Um, and it feels like it's been about ten years. Has, has it been that for you? By the time it's finished, it'll be it'll be close. Actually, it'll be about eight years from start to finish. Yeah, it's a long, long time. Yeah. And seeing it driving through the city uh, most days, you see how it's just growing and how it's coming together. That must be really cool for you. It's fantastic to finally see it um, take shape. I mean, I started uh, the project in Copenhagen in April 2014. Wow. Um, so it's been a slow, slow process. Wow. And we'll, we'll talk about more of that, yeah. uh, about that in the future. Uh, also, the Sydney uh, fish markets we're working on with you guys, mm-hmm. too. We're, we're going to be an amazing building, and you guys have done incredible design for that. Uh, we're doing the signage. Um, how do you find the current climate with you know, COVID uh, going on? Has it affected you guys in, in any way? I mean, it has. As, as I mentioned, you know, Key Quarter Tower, uh, it, by the time it's finished, it'll have taken eight years. That's, you know, most of that was done uh, pre-COVID. But architecture, um, architecture is slow, um, and COVID has actually made it a slower process. Um, I suppose what I mean by that, not necessarily construction, um, but the market is actually uh, timid uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of projects that have actually been put on hold or the, the client is putting on hold to reassess um, whether or not they want the project going in that original direction. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of um, uh, developers had uh, most of their assets or say funds had their assets in commercial real estate um, that took a big hit. Mm. Uh, so uh, several of our projects have been put on hold while um, the client group actually reassess, uh, uh, tries to reassess what they want to do with that particular piece of land. They want to go into health. Do they want to take? Do they want to keep it as commercial? Mm. Um, so it slowed down uh, a few projects, but in other ways, it's actually I think um, heightened our um, uh, what we typically espouse uh, in, in architecture. Um, uh, you know. It's about the user experience, the well-being, um, uh, this idea of uh, green space, um, fresh air, and, and all of those benefits that you actually, uh, that it produces in an architectural space. Now that's um, something that more and more clients are wanting to talk about. They entertained us, I think, previously when mm. we would talk about those things, but now they actually want, want to bring it to, um, uh, into the design. So are they insisting on that now? They're more and more insisting on it. Um, we've COVID has, has changed the discussion from uh, you know what's the most efficient um, 
uh, let's say high rise uh, we can build uh, to what's you know the safest and, and kind of COVID friendly uh, project um, we can design and build. So I think I mentioned this on the last time we spoke during uh, the placemaking um, podcast. Mm-hmm. We want a, a high rise in uh, Paris, and we we're talking about decentralizing the ventilation system. So every floor has their own uh, ventilation unit. So you're exposing less occupants to the same air. Mm-hmm. Um, that project was also pushing outdoor terraces on a high rise uh, yeah. for fresh air. Um, so those sorts of things are, are changing. And then, of course, smart buildings uh, with movement choreography, all sorts of things to keep people um, uh, away from one another. So it, it's, it's impacted in, in a negative way in terms of projects being postponed, but also in a positive uh, way because people are talking more, clients are talking more about well-being now, which is, which is obviously important in design. Mm. Did you find that that was happening prior to COVID with like the fires here in Australia and the big focus on climate? In, in Australia, of course, the fires were, were a big deal. Uh, and I think that led to um, a larger uh, discussion about um, impact on our industry or that our industry actually has on the world. Um, but it wasn't working its way into discussions in terms of um, well-being. It was a larger global discussion about how can we be more sustainable and lessen our impact. Mm. I guess like most architecture firms or creative firms or firms in general, would you probably be naturally be thinking about how to improve things anyways, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you didn't wait for a disaster to rethink how you approach uh, your current designs, et cetera. No, it's, it's, um, I, I think with... We take a very practical, I think, approach to, to design uh, in terms of, um, uh, uh, let's say, sustainability. Uh, that's just a natural part of, of how we design. We think that passive sustainability is the, the best method. Um, you know, keep it, keep it simple. Um, and then, you know, fresh air, um, outdoor spaces, that's just, that's just what you want as a human, whether you're at home, at work, uh, mm. or going for a stroll. Um, so those are natural things that we would bring into the design process. And you're right, it didn't take a pandemic uh, or natural disasters to uh, to bring that at least to the forefront for us. Mm. Um, but clients are talking more and more about it, so it's actually helped us quite a bit. I'm hoping that it's not just seen as being a trend that will then go away and they start cost-cutting again. Yeah, I, I'm, well, cost-cutting, you know, value engineering is always part of it. We, we try to design... That's a nice way of saying it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> um, I remember the first time I heard the term value engineering. It, it took me a while to actually figure <laughs> out uh, what it meant, and I realized once, once I uh, realized that it essentially meant cost-cutting, I didn't mm. like the word, but um, it's, mm. it's in every project, isn't it? Sounds more sophisticated. <laughs> and you grew up in uh, country California, mm. and you got a great accent, and it's nice to hear someone from North America. Tell me a bit about your childhood and what inspired you to become an architect. The, the two, I suppose, might be uh, related uh, indirectly, but uh, I guess first, where, where I grew up uh, was outside of two towns, or I should, should say one large town and, and uh, one quite small town, uh, in between Bakersfield and Shafter, California. It's essentially um, rural California. Um, there's a lot of horses, uh, farming, oil uh, and Basque food, of, of all things. Mm. Um, it's my home to uh, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens. Um, it's country music for those of you that uh, mm. don't know. Um, NFL quarterbacks and NASCAR drivers. Um, uh, but um, I grew up um, on a 60-acre uh, horse ranch, and it was a harness racing uh, uh, ranch. So not necessarily riding horses, but horses to race. Um, and that was, you know, that was great uh, uh, growing up. I did all the things that 
any kid would do in that area. You play a lot of sports. You, um, you know, you ride your bike. But the difference, I had 60 acres to kind of roam around on. Um, mm. uh, and that, that was fantastic, you know, from you know, hay barns to, uh, um, you know, stables. Uh, there was just a lot, uh, a lot to do. And um, in fact, I used to, um, one of my favorite things to do as a child uh, on the ranch was to uh, build hay forts. Um, you t- stack these kind of 40 kilo hay bales uh, yeah, into a cool. configuration, climb up uh, the hay barn, and, and you can maybe call it uh, kind of an analog version of Minecraft before yeah, Minecraft. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that, 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 was, uh, that was a lot of fun. But, um, was, you know, it was all fun and games, I, I suppose, living on the ranch until I turned um, 12, um, 11 or 12. And then if I didn't have a sporting event uh, or practice, um, then I was on the ranch working from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., um, cleaning stalls, um, uh, training horses with my father, uh, fixing fence, cutting weeds, God. fixing more fence. Um, what, did you, you didn't go to school? I did go to school, but this is during summer, oh, of course. Okay. And I, I actually had to clean horse stalls before I went to school uh, for wow. a while as well. Um, See? So it's it world, world away, and I, I had severe, not severe, but I had allergies, hay fever. That was <laughs> quite, so you can imagine what life, life was like for me. I, I went every What morning, a wimp. Oh, my... <laughs> My father knew which stall I was cleaning because I was sneezing. He, he, he used to come up and, and when he'd hear me sneeze, he said, you'd ask me, do you like what you're doing? I'd say, no, not at all. I'd oh say, good, God. get an education. Right? Oh, my God. Um, wow. So I, I um, you know, decided I, I should probably study uh, a little bit harder um, and, uh, and focus on other things. But um, I don't know. I think what, what inspired me to be an architect, uh, it's always a, it's a tough question, um, I don't have a very interesting answer, uh, I suppose. Um, as a kid, I always liked to draw, uh, create. Um, uh, working on the ranch, I had a lot of chores, so I would try to draw and create things that would uh, ease the workload. Um, <laughs> um, but at school, I think the thing that did it at school uh, during that time, I had to take, um, everyone had to take these aptitude tests and I always came back uh, either architect or lawyer, architect mm. or lawyer. Um, and considering I like to draw, I just started saying I was going to be an architect. Um, what did your dad say about that? Did he want you to follow his his route? No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, based on my allergies, uh, he probably thought I had uh, uh, other plans in life. But no, he he actually pushed me to to do other things. Mm. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. Uh, older sister and a younger brother. And is he butch and all kind of muscly and farmy? My my brother actually my brother is uh, no, my sister he, is he, he, <laughs> oh, my sister's lovely um, uh, she didn't follow in uh, in the footsteps of the ranch either nor did my brother my brother is actually a firefighter a captain uh, at a firehouse in Los Angeles actually that's cool. so central Los Angeles uh, different paths wow and what, what's your dad done about like new hands has he got people there who work for him and stuff. Uh, I think he, he had enough as well, so the ranch sold <laughs> a, few, a few years ago. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, he didn't have cheap labor anymore. so yeah. Well, some, some families make their kids follow them, yeah. even if they don't like it. So you were lucky to escape, mm. it sounds like. Oh, it was great. I don't know if I'd call it escape, but um, I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do for a living. But that's cool that you even felt that yeah. at that young age yeah. too, wasn't it? Because yeah. often people do a career later in life and then realize after all that time of studying that it's not right for them. I think it, it only takes, um, you know, if a summer of cutting weeds and 40 degree heat to realize, you know, working on the ranch, you know, it's not for you. I could see you as a Marlboro man though. <laughs> yeah. 
If I was expecting to be in denim today, you know, yeah. with a 10 gallon hat or something. Yeah, yeah no, it, I always get asked if I had cowboy boots and a hat. The answer is no. I wore really? Work, work boots and a baseball cap. Okay, all right. You went to Harvard, right? Mm. Um, and what was that like? Well, I mean, that, that was. How'd a, you get there? How'd I get there? I, um, prior to Harvard, I, I got my undergrad or bachelor's in architecture from a school in California called um, California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Wow, mouthful. Cal Poly slow, uh, <laughs> short. Um, so I had a five-year degree in architecture, uh, liked it, went to, started working in San Francisco, um, and then realized that I, I wanted to challenge myself uh, a bit more. I, I wanted to, I knew there was more that I could, I could learn. Um, so applied to graduate school, um, got into uh, Harvard's graduate school of design, and uh, had a, a great experience there. So, mm. Graduate school, you essentially create your own curriculum, so you could focus on the things that you wanted to, to focus on. What did you focus on? Um, racing stable design. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I did do a, um, uh, a racetrack design uh, for my grandfather at the time, who was considering um, uh, putting a small racetrack on a ranch that he had, but uh, that, nev- that never went anywhere. Um, but uh, no, I think um, uh, Harvard, Harvard was great. Um, I had the good fortune of actually uh, studying uh, under some uh, great instructors, Alejandro Adevena, who later won the Pritzker Prize, mm. uh, two Spanish architects, Mencia Tunon, uh, Farshid Musavi, uh, who I, I actually, whom I took a job with as well um, in London for a, a, a bit of time. Um, and she had a seminar called um, The Function of Ornament. And that was... Uh, an important piece of my education, I think, at, at Harvard, because I, um, growing up on a ranch, you, you see structures that make sense. You can kind of read the form, and you mm. realize why they're shaped the way they are. Mm. Um, and they're more practical. They're more practical. There's a certain Strength utility. Stuff, yeah. um, nothing superfluous. Mm. Um, and then this seminar at, at Harvard with, with Farshid, the function of ornament, it looked at um, how architecture essentially creates its identity from those things that are, are needed. So it's not decoration. It's not something that's just applied. It's not applique. Um, it's the, the, say, the facade is generated based on certain needs, and that's what actually gives it its, its identity. Um, so I think that when you, when you asked what I focused on at, at, uh, at Harvard, I mean, I was just there to learn, absorb, um, um, uh, but also... I suppose, find a direction that seemed to make sense to me. Um, and um, the way Farshid uh, approached her studio uh, as well as her seminar uh, class um, was just something that I, I, I felt comfortable with and believed in, actually. Um, and it, you still had to push. So I, it's not a matter of feeling comfortable and it was easy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but after that, I, I took a job with her uh, in London and you know, continue to develop my thinking um, uh, around uh, kind of performance and architecture. Yeah. Um, was she a visiting teacher, or she? She, she was, yeah. Oh wow! She she would um, fly back, and you know, when you could fly back and forth, um, mm. she was flying back and forth between London and Cambridge. And what was it like at uh, at Harvard? I mean, is it like in the movies <laughs> when you see Harvard University, like Oxford? Is it like incredible social interaction, people all over the world? There were actually in the graduate school design, uh, you were surrounded by um, uh, a lot of uh, different cultures. Um, um, 
and that was interesting obviously everyone bringing their um uh, their own way of thinking their own culture back into the design studio the network actually that you, that you developed the the line of thinking um what you were exposed to was obviously a lot more diverse uh, than what i experienced before let's say in uh, in my bachelor's uh, degree. Um, so graduate school, you really, you're, you're pushing yourself to learn more. You're pushing yourself to, to kind of listen uh, to others, um, how one approaches design, how other cultures approach uh, uh, design. Um, but it was intense. It was, um, you, you don't have any free time. You, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to um, continue to develop projects, con mm. continue to learn, um, uh, continue to understand. Um, and it's, um, it was an intense uh, period uh, mm. uh, in my uh, education, but uh, thoroughly you know, enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah, I guess it made a massive difference to where you're getting to where you are today. Mm. So, so what happened after Harvard? Yeah, so ap after, party. Har <laughs> after Harvard, actually, there was, uh, I, I went straight to, to London. Mm -hmm. And a uh, funny story, I, um, I had a friend at Harvard. He and I went over at the same time. Um, uh, we were get a room together uh, as well. Um, and we decided, uh, we landed, I think, on a Wednesday or Tuesday night. Um, we thought, we weren't scheduled to go into work until a couple days later, but we thought we'd just you know, check in um, in the office to see how things were, uh, just tell them we arrived. And as soon as we did, luggage in hand, uh, they say it's fantastic. You know, you're here. We've got so much work. Uh, do you mind just you know, chipping in? But you know, before you're supposed to start, um, oh. we didn't leave the studio for about three days. Actually, <laughs> luggage, luggage still, still in the office. Um, wow. So it went from just one intense period uh, into the next. But London was great. Um, working from you know eight in the morning until you know, ten at night, um, and then just doing it all over again. But you, similar to graduate school. In London, I had a, a group of people that I was working with that all had um, the same kind of drive and agenda um, to push architecture. And it was in a very similar way. How can the, um, let's say, based on the function of ornament uh, kind of seminar, how can uh, we define the architecture through, you know, these needs? Um, so it was just a great period of time. We're all focused on the, on the same thing, uh, mm -hmm. having a great time, uh, spending a lot of hours um, work from 8 to 10, go grab a beer, go home, sleep, and then do it over again. For how long? I did that for a year, actually. I probably did about two years uh, of hours in a year and then uh, moved to New York after that. Did you get paid while you were there or not? I did get paid. A little yeah. bit? A little bit. Yeah, London, was, London wasn't cheap. No. It must have been pretty intense. I mean, you had that same intensity at Harvard mm -hmm. and, then, and then here and in London. I know what that's like. We were working the same when we were in London, just ridiculous hours. Uh. What happened? What was, the, what was the catalyst to go to New York? Well, at, at, the, uh, at the time I was married, um, and my wife uh, at the time was in New York. So it was, uh, at that time, it was either my job um, uh, in London or the marriage. Uh, and I Had um, you met in London? No, we met in, in Copenhagen when I studied there oh. for a year, actually. <laughs> you missed that bit. I missed that bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I studied in Copenhagen in 1999 during my uh, undergrad, 99, mm -hmm. 2000. Um, and then, long, long story short, I yeah. um, had a girlfriend turned into my wife. Um, she was in New York at the time. I was in London. So moved back to New York, um, uh, actually, um, and started, started working at uh, Shop Architects. 
um, where I worked for about four four months um, before Snow Hetta called, who just opened up a studio in um, in New York, and then I, I, I jumped from shop over to Snow Hetta. Mm-hmm. Um, being a Scandinavian office, I was keen to get back to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, so yeah, I was in New York for a few years, and then from there jumped to Denmark. And what kind of projects were we working on in New York? New York, when you have a practice in New York, it's um, it's actually rare you do work in New York. Yeah. Uh, it's a hub to work everywhere else in the States. Uh, so the primary project that I worked on was a library in North Carolina, of mm. all places. Um, um, yeah, North Carolina State University, I worked on a, a library there um, for about uh, two and a half of those, three and a half years I was at Snowhead. And then, was it was it the same intensity as London? No, not, not at all, actually. I was... Um, um, being, a a breeze. Scan- being a Scandinavian office, it was a lot easier. I was I was leaving at seven o'clock, uh, seven thirty at night instead of ten ten thirty. Yeah, did that feel weird. It did in the beginning, but you get used to it. <laughs> yeah, start to have a life. Yeah, um, and then you went to Denmark. Went to Denmark uh, in twenty ten. Um, my uh, partner and I at the time um, we had uh, a child, and she wanted to return to Copenhagen to be mm. closer to family. Um, yeah, New York would be tough to have kids. It was, yeah, it was tough, but it was also great. Mm. Um, great, great time um, to be in New York. But then when we moved to Denmark, I started working for 3XN about a month uh, after uh, I landed and just felt comfortable from day one. Um, it Very similar to what we were doing at FOA. Um, there was just a the common sense uh, approach to design. I was surrounded by a group of people at 3XN that um, in a way had very similar backgrounds. Uh, They grew up in rural uh, Denmark. Um, um, They loved architecture, but it wasn't the only thing in in their life that had a great balance uh, in Mm -hmm. life. And it took me a bit of time to to start to find uh, um, a balance, but 3XN was, it's just been, uh, I've been there a decade now, um, and it's been uh, a wonderful, uh, uh, you know, time in, in my career, uh, obviously. Mm. Um, but but uh, 3XN, um, the thing it took me, uh, I guess, a bit of time to get used to was um, uh, was the long winters. Uh, so moving to Sydney, when I finally did, um, let's just say I didn't miss the five yeah. or six months of zero degrees. How had long had 3XN been going for before you joined then? It's been 10 years now. 3XN, about 20, uh, 20 to 25 years. Um, mm. So we've been around 35 uh, years, so it's been 25 years, actually. Mm. Um, um, but when I moved to Copenhagen, they had just moved their office from uh, Aarhus um, and um, started thinking internationally. Um, and I, I, when I started, I was probably the, I think I was the second non-Danish-speaking uh, employee uh, there. Wow. Um, so, of course, I worked on all the international projects because my Danish was so poor. It still is. I speak Danish like a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so 3XN, is there three guys called Nigel? What's the 3XN? Yeah, not, not, not bad, actually. Really close. Um, the story behind that, the, the founding partner, uh, Kim Herfold Nielsen, um, the N and 3XN, um, after he graduated from school, he took a, a, a trip to Italy um, he and, and two other buddies, and they happened to have the last name Nielsen. 
Ah. Uh, so the story goes, um, he, um, he and his buddies uh, obviously were going around Italy uh, drinking a lot of red wine and decided <laughs> to open up a, a firm. So when they came back, they called it Three Times Nielsen. Um, ah. It's funny, we told this story at when we won the International Olympic Headquarters in Lausanne. And the president of the IOC, uh, he asked the same question, where does the name come from? <clears throat> and Kim's telling the story. Um, and he goes on and says, three buddies, you know, we started this firm, uh, um, but I'm the only one left. And Thomas uh, Boss shook his head and said, great, great. He said, okay, so one X in, now you can start your presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. Yeah. That is so cool. What a cool story. Um, and also just like humble beginnings, isn't it? And, and I guess um, grew quite substantial over the last 10 years. Yeah. What, so, what, so you guys pitched, is, it, is that how you came to Sydney? Were you pitching on a Sydney project? Exactly. Or it was the key quarter project? Well, it was the key quarter project that we were pitching uh, for. We were, um, we had worked internationally, uh, essentially the day one that I got there, they, they started working uh, um, internationally or trying to. Um, and I worked on projects in uh, Moscow, Mumbai, um, um, New York, um, um, and the day you started, said, "Hey, Fred's here. Yeah, Fred let's here, take let's on the get world." It going. That's right. No, <laughs> it took it took a little it took a little while. Oh, um, okay. But after uh, I was there about three or four years, four years, we we got approached by AMP um, to uh, compete for their new headquarters. Um, and when we found out, you know, we were doing a high rise, of course, uh, we were excited. And then when we found out where it was, just a stone's throw mm. from the opera house, mm. um, of course, we, uh, we jumped at the chance. And luckily, uh, through a two-stage competition, we won. Yeah. And I was flying back and forth um, uh, leading that project. Uh, two and a half years flying back and forth. I probably had 20, 25 trips. Um, and then gradually started staying longer uh, in Sydney. As I said, I interrupted um, uh, the winter, Danish winter, which was nice. Mm. Um, and just as our design work started to slow a bit on Key Quarter Tower, we um, competed for the fish market, and we wound up winning that. Mm. Um, and at that point, my marriage uh, uh, was no longer. Um, I started working here, uh, wound up um, uh, meeting an Australian girl. And then, of course... Uh, told Kim and the others at the office, I think it'd be great if we opened up uh, an office in, um, in Sydney. We liked the opportunities, actually, that were coming out of Australia. There, there was um, uh, an openness to new ideas mm. and a different way to approach design. Um, and it, 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 was, it seemed to fit with um, our desire to create work that actually focused on the user experience mm. um, versus creating architecture of form because architecture mm. of form is just it's quite boring yeah it was it was amazing because we, we were working on the, the initial branding strategic positioning of key quarter with amp capital in the early days uh cat bridges who's our head of place was heading that up which is absolutely brilliant but i remember the guys saying we're heading off to tour the world and meet a whole bunch of amazing architects yeah. and um obviously local architects probably were slightly miffed by that i think that happens doesn't it here where Maybe less so today because people have managed to have good partnerships with international. Mm. It works both <coughs> ways too. Yeah. But it, was, were they people were like, who the hell's 3XN? I, in the beginning, um, I think they were. Let me at Nigel. Let yeah. me get that Nigel <laughs> yeah. guy. Who's this Nigel, this 3X Nigel? Um, it's, it's been strange, a strange um, 
three to five years, actually. When we first came over, uh, everyone, um, I'd say not everyone, all the, the several architects asked us in to give a talk. Um, and then when we won the fish market um, and then we opened up a studio, all of a sudden uh, it wasn't, oh, great, let's have 3XN uh, in for a talk. It was 3XN uh, Australia now is competition. No more fish and chips. No more fish and chips together, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a strange period of time um, now. There's, there's a big push for projects to only be um, Australians that are invited. Um, uh, actually, one recently um, is the New Gallery Victoria, which has an Australia-only uh, approach. Um, and uh, it's... It, it's peculiar, I think, for us because uh, we're obviously a global uh, architecture firm. Uh, 80, 85 percent of our work uh, is global. Um, and when you're when you're an insider, I think you tend to look outside your own area for influence. But as an outsider um, coming into these various places, we look very much uh, at the kind of local uh, conditions. And I think sometimes we actually see things. In this case, in Australia, that might be more Australian. Um, than some Australian firms. Mm. Um, not always, but we're not looking outside of the area we're designing around. We're actually trying to design around the constraints and conditions, actually, that, um, that we're faced with. Mm. Um, and there has been a push uh, more recently to try to eliminate um, international uh, architects. And we're in this strange, actually, this really positive uh, situation, I think, where we're both international but we're also local hmm. you know, we're 3xn australia or 3xn oz yeah uh, uh, as i like to say it looks better graphically um, yeah we're in a peculiar period of time but um we've, work keeps coming in and we're we're um we're quite happy here we're not going anywhere yeah and i guess do you employ local people too we do about half the staff actually over half the staff um are australians hmm. um and then we have some that came with me from the copenhagen office um and um, a couple other scandinavians that we've hired uh, along the way <laughs> what was the point of difference in the in the pitch? Do you think? I mean, I'm obviously it's going to be a big conversation. I expect you explain the whole thing, but was the fact that it was Danish firm was it like a, a major part in that? And how you guys approached um, people, community space, you know, human centered design, etc. Yeah, we 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 take um, we take a very practical approach uh, to design. Um, we. Example, key quarter tower, the reason we won um, isn't the, the form of the tower. It looks unique, but it's, it's responding to, to constraints, solar constraints, um, uh, the context, the dynamism of the, the street and the, the views to the bay. Um, but we designed it from the inside out, thinking about that human experience. Uh, what would be the workspace of the, um, the user going in uh, every single day? Um, and that's what actually formed these uh, atria that stack up throughout mm. the building. Um, and it, we were actually told we won the project because we were focused on the user experience. Mm. Um, so I think that idea of um, approaching uh, design um, in that human-centric way um, is, is what separates us from a lot of other architects. We, of course, we still care about you know, how the building looks, the materials we use, um, but we never lose sight of what that human experience is about, and we design around Isn't it. Isn't that funny that I mean, you, you want it because of that? Mm. Like, you just hope that every architecture firm has that same approach. 
You would think so. It's a lot less common than you would think. Yeah, well, surely it's taught, right? At, at uni- unis and universities, etc., around the world. I think they, w- when you're an architect studying, um, there's certain skill set that you have to learn. Uh, there's certain things that you need in your arsenal or your, you know, your tool belt uh, to help you produce architecture. And I think a lot of architects um, actually lose sight of what they're designing for. Mm. Um, and we've spoke of um, you know, hugi, the, the Danish uh, uh, word. Um, and I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Because um, I, I have it written here, but do, there's no way you? I'm going to say it. Higgy. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a difficult time with I'm sure yeah. some Danes that will listen that say I've pronounced it incorrectly. But um, <laughs> that I think that plays into the way we design. Uh, Hugi is essentially um, another word for cozy, but it, it mm. it's, I think more importantly, it's a time where you come together with friends and family um, and you, uh, you, know, you discuss, you listen, um, uh, you share a drink. Um, it's it's a slow way of life, um, and, but it's always focused on that human condition, um, and I think that plays into the into the way we design. We really never lose sight of what we're designing for. I, mm. w- one of um, great story actually. I think I was at three XN the first two weeks uh, I was there. Two things um, uh, happened. I was the first one I was working. Uh, it was six thirty. I was working late actually. And um, one of the partners came up and said, we're, you know, we're serious. We want everyone to have a, you know, life outside the office. So, you know, we try to limit the hours to 40, 40 hours a week. I thought, so was that a.m. or p.m.? That was, that was, that was <laughs> I know, it was 6 p.m. So okay. I, I thought, I thought, okay, he, he can't be serious. Uh, and yeah. I looked around and I was the only one in the office besides the partner. Um, so there's a certain acceptance that you have a life uh, outside of architecture. Mm. Uh, and as a result, you, you think of, when you're designing, you actually think about that life. You think about the, the human condition, the human experience. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that happened within that two weeks, um, I was designing something, Kim came, to, came up to my uh, computer and I, um, I thought, this is, this is great, this building looks fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm showing Kim and he said, oh, it's, it's great, Fred, it's really, you know, it's good. But what's the what's the user experience like? And it's the first time I had any uh, partner or any architect that I actually worked with um, ask me that question. Um, and that's I think that's when I knew that Three uh, XN was the right fit for me, was the right place for me. Um, mm. And we're still designing around those you know, that that human experience uh, mm. to this day. Was Key Quarter Tower? Did you present it as being a cozy experience? I, I <laughs> think we might have played that card uh, <laughs> for sure. Well, I thought yeah. that was interesting because, I mean, that's obviously meant to be a, you know, thriving community there, right? Yeah. It's meant to be very productive, a lot, lot of finance, a lot of other yeah. industries there. It kind of goes against that, doesn't it? But, but, but there's a client looking for that, more a different approach? Yeah, one, one reason why they um, approached us, we... Um, we done designed a couple tall buildings, built um, a, a taller hotel in Copenhagen. Um, but high ri- a high-rise design um, wasn't necessarily in our um, bag, of, bag of tricks uh, mm-hmm. at, at, at that point. Um, and we were chosen because of our, the way we actually approached some of our campus-style headquarters where we focused on um, daylight, uh, green space, um, coming together, uh, knowledge sharing, and what happens when you actually mix people together 
uh, instead of treating everyone, everyone like an automaton uh, or just a cog in a wheel. Um, so that idea of that human-centric design is what is the reason why we are invited to the competition. So it felt natural for us just to approach a high-rise in the same way. How did you approach that without knowing specifically who's going to be using the building? Or, or did you get more in, insight to that? We, we had, um, it was a great brief. Um, we knew it was going to be a commercial office building. Um, in, in order to separate itself from, let's say, the rest of the commercial towers going up at the time, they wanted something um, that was more than just um, stack slabs. They didn't say that, but you could, you could tease out of the brief and through conversations that they were looking for uh, a new way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the way they described uh, that way of working was very similar to the way we were designing commercial spaces, office spaces uh, in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's just bringing people together, that, um, allowing for this commingling, uh, the social dynamism to occur. And when that happens, uh, People are generally happier. Um, uh, knowledge gets shared amongst departments. Um, if people, uh, you know, showing up for work uh, more often, uh, eager uh, to um, uh, to perform. Mm. Um, so it felt very natural uh, for us. Yeah, pre- you can go in some old, much older buildings here, anywhere in the world, and you just see how cold and mm. bland they are. Mm. They don't. They're not in- inducive to um, feeling good no. and positive, fresh no. air. Yeah. Uh, co-working and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Is it particularly the Danish approach to hoagie hoogie um, <laughs> that that's there's going to be a big it's difference? Just cozy, <laughs> yeah, cozy like living to the key quarter kind of experience. Will that be will that will that feel quite different? And well, is the fish market going to same cozy experience or not? Yes and no, actually. Um, I'm not being, I'm being, we, I'm we, being we, cheeky, but we we um, you know, I know uh, it's it'll be a cozy experience. We've there's two things that, that happened when we um, started competing for the fish market. Um, we walked out to the site, and we realized that it was one of the only uh, foreshore areas in Sydney that you didn't have direct access to the water. Um, this site was boarded off. Uh, there was a concrete mixing plant on site. Mm. Uh, the fish market itself, you had very limited access uh, to the water. Um, and... The information that we were hearing, the research that was gathered, is that the locals actually weren't coming to the fish market that often. It was but too it, hard, wasn't it? But every, it, yeah, it's too hard to get to. But every local uh, also had an, an experience when they were younger about going there on Christmas or Easter, and mm. everyone had a positive story to tell. But no one was actually returning. Mm. Um, so between not addressing the harbor and the community, local community not coming back, those were two of the parameters we actually set for ourselves and we were designing it. Um, let's actually design uh, authentic fish market experience because that is what was bringing people to the fish market, mm-hmm. um, seeing fish being wheeled around, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fish shows and, and rubber boots and aprons pushing uh, buckets of ice with fish uh, around. So we didn't want to hide that. Um, but we also wanted to make the fish market a catalyst for activity, community activity, and that is essentially bringing people together. Mm. So focusing as much on um, the functions of the fish market um, as we, or I should say, focusing as much on the external spaces as we were a functioning fish market. Mm. Um, I think some of the competitors that we were up against pushed all the industrial portion of the fish market 
down below grade. Mm -hmm. um, and then grade level was essentially a, a, a retail um, a food and beverage offering. And that's not going to pull you over to Blackwater Bay. No. You want that authentic experience. So in a way, um, take it back to the, the question is that, you know, Hoogie, uh, it, it is about bringing community together and bringing people together and trying to connect uh, a new building back to place and actually enhance um, um, what was what's already there. Mm. It's really interesting because obviously during COVID and prior to COVID, there has been over the years this movement towards the slow movement, mm. you know, slow cooking, slow living, um, slow exercise for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and me both. Yeah, but it's, it's just like, uh, and there's plenty of books out there, yeah. kind of calm, cozy. Mm. You know, Monaco did a, a series of books called, um, I think it was Cozy Living or something. Yeah. And there's, obviously there's something there that people are going, well, look, we don't want cold, austere, shallow places. We, we want to feel that kind of warmth and connection. It's hard to do, presumably, in that, on that scale, I would have thought. We approach, we approach architecture, I think, the same way um, maybe Jan Gehl, um, the famous um, uh, urban designer uh, from Denmark, same way he approaches uh, urban design. We, we design um, flow and program in a way where we set up opportunities for activity, um, opportunities for this kind of social dynamism uh, to occur. Um, and, you know, when you do that, um, it does slow things down. Um, it allows for you to connect back to place, um, uh, you know, whether that's creating a, a large amphitheater um, that faces uh, a new plaza that also faces um, the bay and the Anzac Bridge. It's just, it's about creating moments that uh, people can feel connected to, mm. um, but that are rooted in place that you can't find anywhere else. I guess the clients must relate to it better as well, the fact that it's focused on human experiences. It's, it's, um, we found that clients respond to it, um, as do um, town planners, um, uh, community uh, f uh, workshops. Um, it's, it's easy to talk to uh, prospective clients or clients about uh, an experience and how that can add value back into the building than it is to talk to them about those things that architects kind of talk to uh, or talk about uh, amongst themselves. Mm. Uh, materiality is important, obviously. Um, uh, a ruled surface versus, you know, orthogonal uh, surface. Those sorts of things are interesting for architects, but they don't really relate back to um, the typical um, you know, client uh, or, or, or user experience. Are you a partner at 3XN now? I am. For Australia or like the whole, the whole firm? Yeah, th for the whole firm. Uh, I became partner about five years ago um, and now running the Australian uh, office here in Sydney. And how do you manage to kind of work together with the kind of the 3XN global um, offices? Mm. Is there other offices apart from Denmark in here? Yeah, there are actually. Um, Copenhagen's uh, our headquarters. Um, it's where we uh, have the largest office. Um, it's where everyone starts out. Um, then we have a New York studio um, that's just started to look over some of the work we have uh, in North America. And we have a project studio essentially in Stockholm. Um, and we just opened one, uh, another studio in London Mm. Uh, where we have a high-rise uh, project with British land. Oh, cool. Wow. And do you guys all get together on a regular basis, or are you just going to do your own thing here? 
No, we, we get together on a regular basis. We, um, depending on the project, um, we either have a, a split team, Copenhagen and Sydney, working on it, um, or um, some of the smaller projects we're, we're doing just uh, in Sydney. Um, but we regularly send through process logs uh, between the two uh, studios when we're uh, working together. We have regular uh, VC catch-ups. Um, so video conferencing wasn't um, a new thing uh, mm. for us when, when the pandemic hit. So we transitioned actually quite easily mm. into to working uh, remotely. Um, I have regular catch-ups with um, the partner group, the project teams. Um, we have a global catch-up um, uh, about once every month, sometimes twice a month with all the studios. So it's 10 o'clock, 10 to, to 12 midnight uh, my time, which, wow. is, which is great. Um, uh, for New York, it's 6 in the morning, so I think oh, I, yeah. we have it a little bit better. Um, but yeah, we just, it, we're in constant contact. Um, phone calls, um, design process, uh, sharing, um, Revit, uh, BIM management, catch-ups. Uh, but it, we've been doing that pre, pre-pandemic, so mm-hmm. it was, again, it was an easy transition. So you're back to doing long hours, or, or you got still a good balance now? I have a better balance. Um, I, th- I think I also have a very accommodating uh, partner. She's um, she puts up with the 10, 10 p.m. Uh, uh, video conferences. Um, I've I've managed to um, I've learned to turn things off uh, after a period of time. Um, but no, I'm, I'm I'm in front of the computer for hours on end. Uh, team meetings with. Um, uh, Copenhagen or in, in the studio actually working with, uh, with the teams. And like a lot of architects over the years, you must have traveled a hell of a lot mm. to different countries mm. on different projects. How is that? You probably haven't traveled for like a year, have you? It's almost been a year. I came back from Copenhagen uh, in the middle of March, so we're approaching, approaching one year. And has that felt odd for you? It has. Um, the romanticism of flying wore off a long time ago. <laughs> but what, I, what, what I've actually realized when I was flying the 22-hour trips between Copenhagen and, and Denmark, uh, or sorry, Copenhagen and, uh, and Sydney, um, it, was, it was the one moment where I could actually shut off mm. uh, for a period of time, yeah. 22 hours at a time. But then Emirates decided they would up their Wi-Fi service, so that kind of <laughs> stopped as well. Yes, I remember that. Uh, you kind of thought, oh, that's all. Oh, yeah. no, they're going to get me all the time. Yeah, yeah so that, I guess it means you're, you're sitting in front of a computer longer. Mm. What does it feel like also, I've asked it to a few people too, just saying, you know, you haven't necessarily been on site to a, a development that you're working on, walked around the neighborhood or, mm. or seen a site in development. How does that feel? I mean, obviously here you have because you're on the ground, but if you're working on projects elsewhere. I think some of the team... Um, that we have some projects under development in Toronto, um, and um, say North America is handling the pandemic slightly differently. Uh, so there's there's been some oversight uh, on projects in Toronto uh, from the New York office. Um, but Sydney, luckily, the um, all of our projects that we have there um, continuing to move forward. So I, I get that site uh, mm-hmm. experience. But otherwise, it's just uh, several um, uh, photos. Um, being shared between the contractor and the architects. In fact, we, we designed um, a large lobby in Melbourne. Um, one of our architects was traveling there every week, and then, of course, that stopped. So he was doing it through um, uh, FaceTime uh, videos, uh, looking at defects uh, through FaceTime videos, mm. uh, and then just a lot of photos back and forth. So I think we're, we're all spending a lot more time uh, in front of a screen these days. Mm. 
what I like to talk to people about is actually their own personal life. I know you've given us quite a lot of information, so thank you for that. <laughs> but just how do you manage to make it work around your own personal sustainability? Because obviously a lot of people do, uh, do and can work incredibly long hours, mm. focus 99% of the time on their job mm. uh, to the detriment of their health and their well-being and relationships. And we've all been there. And we've all kind of gotten to bad places probably. But uh, have you been through that similar journey? What, what do you do to, um, uh, to manage kind of have a balanced lifestyle? I, I'm, I'm learning. It's, it, it's a process. Um, I think working um, internationally or working for a, a, a global uh, architecture studio, um, it naturally means that my hours are going to be a little bit longer um, than most. Um, so what I have actually learned to do is just um, uh, turn off um, mostly uh, on the weekend, uh, try to do other things, focus on uh, focus on life uh, a little bit more. Um, but it's a process. I'm I'm still I'm still not there. I think like a lot of architects or creatives, mm. um, it's hard just to switch, um, uh, you know, flick a switch and 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 turn it off. Um, mm. But I've um, started you know doing a bit more. I think uh, we we talked about. Um, uh, hobbies and, and so forth. Um, I've, I've started making a killer Danish rye bread uh, recently, which, is, which nice. has been great. Um, kind of missed that, believe it or not, uh, not living in Denmark. Um, wow. So yeah, just, Have you perfected just, it? Uh, it's definitely perfected. <laughs> I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring you a loaf. I'll bring you a loaf. It's, um, is that really heavy, dark bread? It's a heavy, dark oh, bread, lovely. yeah. We, I, have, um, I actually have a cleaver on a swivel that, um, that you have to use to cut through it. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so just talk about sustainability around the business too, because we talked before how clients are getting, you know, thank God, are getting really focused on that being a very, very important part of a project is how sustainable they are as an organization, the place yeah. that they're building and the community, et cetera. How does, um, how much the impact does, you have a team called GXN, right? So what, do that, what does that stand for again? Yeah, it's um, the G's for green. Um, it's essentially our in-house sustainability arm uh, of the office. That's it. Yeah. Very, very cool. And and how, what do they do? So you could you could think of GXN. Well, they do quite a bit actually. They're um, they're a sustainability uh, research arm. They're looking at um, uh, behavior uh, in architecture uh, as well, um, and then material research. Um, so. They naturally will, well, they come into our projects and uh, will give their uh, uh, design input on sustainability. Uh, um, for example, um, we at 3XN, we, we always design around a passive sustainability, so not an active. Uh, you, don't, you don't flick a switch to, um, to make something sustainable. It's, it's not necessarily mechanically uh, mm -hmm. driven. Um, so early in the design process, when we were thinking through uh, sun shading or uh, in internal environments, um, they're there to actually act as an in-house consultant to help us through that process. Um, Sydney Fish Market was an example uh, of where they uh, actually came in. And during the roof design, um, we obviously needed the roof to do more than just cover a space. Uh, it had to perform. Um, and we were designing a roof that could harvest all the rainwater, um, could naturally uh, ventilate, um, would allow indirect sunlight, um, 
Uh, so the roof was actually performing and needing to do quite a bit. So they came in and also helped, um, uh, essentially through computational design, help us shape the roof um, in order to collect all the water, in order to find an optimized solution uh, in terms of the number of um, uh, cassettes, trying to reduce and optimize um, that whole process. They also wrote a white paper on water usage, mm. which helped the client um, um, or help convince the client that we actually could achieve a 50% water reduction um, wow. in the project. So they have their hands in a little bit of um, all stages or phases of our projects, but uh, heavily involved in the early stages where we essentially work uh, as a team. I wouldn't say it's GXN and 3XN, we're just, we're just one team yeah. uh, developing a project. So does the client ask for that roof? Or, or do you just design it and then work with the GXN on how to make this work? It's the, I wouldn't say the client asks for it. Um, there's certain requirements that every uh, client asks for in, um, in Australia. You, know, you have to meet a certain green star rating. Mm. Uh, neighbor's rating needs to be X. Mm-hmm. Um, our approach to design is to uh, keep things actually quite uh, uh, simple. All of our work needs, all the design decisions are contingent upon designing around parameters and constraints. Um, so when we get to that point and we're designing the Sydney fish market and we want the roof to do all of these things, um, GXN essentially helps us uh, along the way, um, whether it's through material consideration, um, calculating uh, the amount of you know, kilowatts um, that the roof can actually harvest in terms of solar PVs, so they just come in and, and they essentially are mad scientists in the office mm. uh, and, and uh, come in through different stages of the design process and help. And then we relay that back to the client and they see that we're actually adding value back into a project, that we're, we're approaching the project in a very serious way. It's not about us um, sketching on the back of a napkin and saying, here's our design. Mm. We're designing and saying, here's how it, here's how it performs. This mm. is what it's doing. Mm. Uh, and here's the support. Um, in order to um, um, move the project forward. Mm. So you're obviously that takes a lot of collaboration. Yeah, I mean, as an arch- architect, you're uh, you're collaborating with um, various consultants. You know, along the way, sometimes it's more intense than others. Um, but it's just we're we're. I think one of our strengths as an office is we're extremely collaborative, and maybe it goes back to that sense of hugi where it's it's about uh, conversation, uh, it's about listening. Um, we, we don't feel that we have all the answers, but we take in what we hear, mm. um, what's said, what's in the brief, what are the site constraints, and we produce an architecture around that. We, we don't have a style. Our, our, our architecture actually comes from you know, a collaborative uh, process. It comes from uh, site constraints. It comes from listening to, uh, to others around us. On a project as, as a partner here, I presume you're leading the, the design, are you? Mm. Do you sketch? How, how do you kind of design buildings today? Yeah, no, sketching is still um, a part of it. All, all of our work um, is digital, um, but you still have to uh, work through ideas, and that could be um, uh, a hand sketch that you start to work through an idea that you eventually uh, formulate into uh, a model. Um, it's through conversation. So all of those techniques um, that you, you, know, you develop as, 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 as you're um, uh, working through, um, let's say, school or let's say, architectural school, um, 
or that you learn along the way, all of those things still come into, into mm -hmm. practice. Um, mm -hmm. um, but what's unique about 3XN, I think, versus a lot of other offices uh, is that the ideas don't all, they're not always generated by a partner. Um, we have a belief in our studio that the best idea wins. That could be an intern, it could be a partner, um, or it can be a client. Um, mm. And we want what's best for the project. Mm. And, and so that, that kind of collaborative uh, approach, I think, is what, what, what separates us from, from the others. You're not uncomfortable being trumped by an intern? No, not, not at all, actually. <laughs> Well, that, that would be a big coup for an intern going, oh, no, it, it, just design the fish market. That's, that's right. No, we've had that. Um, so did, it, did the intern design the fish market and keep? Not, not, not in this case. Not in this case. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Not, not in this case. We, we have had, um, uh, but, but it's also not, it's not one hand on a project. And I think um, that kind of mysticism that's around architecture, mm. um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting um, for us architects because, um, we know that an idea isn't generated from one person. Um, projects develop along the way. Our process is we free sketch for a couple of weeks. We start to work through ideas. Through mm. that discussion with the team, a couple of ideas start to find their way to the top. Mm. Then the team members start to pitch in mm. and, and start working on those ideas. So by the end of the six to eight week design process, everyone's had a hand in it and everyone mm. feels like they've had a part um, so it's not a single author that actually produces. Mm. In, the old, in the old days, it used to be that, didn't it? It used to be the guru, designer, architect. Well, certainly it looked like that. Yeah, I think it looks like that. Um, Often with a cigar or something. That's right, and a whiskey. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we still have whiskey. But, but, but you know, some, sometimes, um, um, sometimes that, that is the case. Um, um, but... We're a practice that's non-hierarchical. We, uh, again, we think that the best idea wins. We don't, mm. we don't have a style, so it's not coming from one person's hand. Um, it, it's coming out of the process, mm. and I think that's really, really important. Mm. Um, it also lends itself to a really uh, happy, thriving uh, studio. Mm. Um, we don't have any ego in our office. Um, if you do, you don't last very long. Um, we like to say we at the studio and not I. Mm. Um, it, that's, that's an important part of who we yeah. are. We agree with that. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> I. Uh, we're, we're very similar in that way. I mean, I, it, didn't, it did start off as a firm as, you know, I was by myself. But I always talked as we because I, d I wanted people to think I was a business. But, um, and I totally agree with you. I totally agree that an idea can come from anywhere. And it doesn't matter who's had the idea mm. as long as it's great. Um, I think the key thing with that is just making sure that y it was interesting what you just said too because you said that people still it creates a kind of a positive environment because if someone feels like someone's always coming up with the ideas it can be quite demoralizing and therefore they don't put the effort in as much as they would if they, they were going to own it that's, the key that's thing is true. How, do you, how does everybody how do you people maintain that positivity and energy when it's kind of like it's a mixture of all of us. Like it's not, nobody actually owns it. We all own it together. I mean, not everybody likes that. I've, I've experienced, but some people obviously do. It's, yeah, an, it's how we all work today. Yeah, I, th I think um, we, we take a while to hire. I think we hire the, the right people with the right attitude. Mm -hmm. um, I used to think that as long as someone had a great skill set, um, then they were going to be a great fit for the office, but that's not the case. Um, you have to have both the, the right attitude 
and the right skill set. But when we start a a project, we'll come up with uh, a concept, uh, an idea, um, and as that idea begins to take shape, um, it's essentially the filter, that concept becomes the filter that that everyone in the studio that's working on the project um, could run their own questions through. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no, there's, no, there's no right answer. There's a direction that, uh, that the, the studio actually starts moving towards, but it's through that concept. Um, and then it starts to take on a life of its own and it goes in directions that um, um, weren't preconceived. Mm. And I think that's what I love about uh, my profession uh, and also uh, 3XN. Um, we don't know necessarily where projects get to go in the beginning, but we're asking questions and we're trying to find uh, a solution that we can enhance that everyday experience. You know, we can, it, it's formed on um, accentuating those elements that we actually need. Um, and it's, it's, it's an enjoyable process. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's something that everyone can buy into. So it's, we don't typically have issues where colleagues um, feel like they... Um, they don't enjoy it because they, they seem to have a voice. They have mm. a voice in the office, and that's mm. important. So you've lived here for a while in Sydney, yeah. and like any great city, there's always room for improvement. Mm. What do you think Sydney can do in terms of its urban planning improve? Sydney, uh, from the time I started coming here in 2014 uh, to you know, now 20, 2020, um, it's made huge strides, and I think it's uh, it's put more of a focus on public domain, and that's, that's done through this idea of design excellence competitions, which is what brought me out here. Um, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I don't know if you've heard what a design excellence competition is, but it essentially is the city, um, the planning department, allows a developer to have a slight uptick in um, their allowable area if half the jury of the competition is made up of city officials. So that puts a, a developer that's obviously interested in the bottom line uh, on, in a jury with a city that's interested in public domain. So public domain, uh, the outcome in terms of uh, its approach uh, to urban planning becomes as important as the piece of architecture or the, the, the bottom line. Uh, it's as important as what it looks like in the skyline. The public domain becomes an active part of that design process. Um, so I think the city of Sydney has actually done really well to um, put more of a focus on public domain. Circular keys transforming, that's going to be a completely different um, mm-hmm. environment than it was when I first started uh, coming. It'll be something that isn't just for tourists, but actually for locals mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, you know, these sort of things uh, take time. It, it's also about creating diversity, um, creating another offering uh, within the city center. It can't just be nine to five. Uh, commercial office space. Um, there's more residential um, towers that are planned in the city. That'll bring a certain amount of life uh, um, through those extended hours that probably wasn't around uh, when I first started coming back and forth. What do you feel about, obviously, COVID has created a situation where there's a, 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 quite a lot of people who are leaving the city itself and going an hour, two hour out of, out of town. And if you listen to the news and watch, read the papers on the weekend, it's, it's huge, the, the growth that's happening. It's, it's opposite of what people were saying. They're saying, you know, 80% of people live in cities. Yeah. And there seems to be a shift away from the cities. Do you think that's just a short-term I think it's situation? short-term. Um, we, can, we can work remotely for a period of time. Um, 
but you still need to come together, I think, to generate the best ideas. Um, and that's whether you're in finance or architecture or um, you know, graphics. Um, so I think it's short, short term. Um, once everyone that moved out, they still have jobs within the CBD. Um, you know, they're gonna have to commute again. And traffic's mm. light now, but once the pandemic's over, they're gonna be facing the same, same thing that actually started to bring a lot more people into the inner city. But people have really got a taste for this hoogie business. <laughs> you know, it's kind of made us focus on our homes, our family, good, you know, food, doing simple things. Yeah. There's a book out I was reading the other day called um, The Art of Puttering, Pottering, mm-hmm. which is just like, you know, doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I quite like it because I find myself doing nothing every so often and going, hang on, I'm doing nothing. I need to, I need to do something. Yeah. But actually just doing something like sweeping the leaves or something is actually quite... I've learned to experience that and as a, or re-experience that as mm. a positive thing. I quite like it. Yeah. Um, so can you do that in the city? Can you, be, can you have that kind of cozy, warm lifestyle? I think, I think you can. I mean, it, um, of course, the term uh, uh, originated in, in, in Denmark, and everyone that lives in the inner city has a very hoogie uh, lifestyle, you know, whether mm. they have a garden outside or not. I think pottering about is essentially um, very similar to, to hoogie, as you, as you said. It's... it's um, just finding an internal peace. It doesn't matter if you're um, reading a book, um, sweeping up the leaves in, in your, your backyard, as you, you mentioned, um, mm. or in, in a way just kind of taking a stroll. Um, mm. I think it is just about connecting um, uh, again. I was wondering if, if people, do you think people feel the need to move to make that commitment to it? Because is it harder to do it from where you are right now, that shift? I mean, I personally prefer to go to Health Farm than go than <laughs> yeah. spend the next two months trying to get fit. Um, I'd rather go. I'm going to go for ten days and I'll, and I come back ten kilos lighter. Yeah. It's um, I'll be cured. Yeah, it it it's it's hard to break routine, right? And sometimes a different environment uh, allows you to do that. That's for sure. Um, I don't know. It's a tough one. Um, I think everyone responds uh, differently. Um, some can adapt and change. Um, quite readily. Others do need uh, to be taken out of their typical environment uh, to do that. Mm. And I guess every development that you're working on or fish market mm. or gallery, whatever it might mm. be, it's fighting for people's desire and attention. Mm. You're trying to each time make it something that's, oh, have you seen that new? Have you been there? You yeah. know, obviously the client wants that because they want to lease it out, sell yeah. it, attract retail customers, etc. I mean, I guess people are always looking for that point of difference. Yeah, um, that was happening, obviously, pre, uh, pre-COVID. Um, the, the term authenticity um, you know, kept coming up. Um, and that's essentially creating, designing and creating place, connecting back uh, to place. I think, at least my take, um, with globalization, the digital... Um, proliferation um, previously everyone was wanting to look you know outside of, of, of where they were um, and as the world got smaller through um, social media or a digital environment um, everything became the same uh, and as a result I think people started to reconnect and, and, and try to uh, or at least reconnect with what is local uh, again and then the pandemic has actually helped um, um, uh, proliferate that uh, mm-hmm. a bit a bit more 
Um, so that, that authentic experience is something I think everyone's uh, striving for. Um, and similar to the fish market, when, when we were designing that, we, we thought, what, what makes an authentic experience? Um, so it's just a matter of enhancing uh, those things that are around, mm -hmm. um, not trying to turn them into something they're not. Um, you have the foreshore. Let's accentuate it. Let's celebrate it. Um, you have a community. Let's give the community a place where they can actually gather. Mm. Um, uh, you need uh, grab-and-go places to sit. Let's make an amphitheater so you can do that, but you can also host a, a concert during Vivid. Um, so it, it's, it's about enhancing what's around you, I think, and that's what gives uh, that authenticity that everyone's looking for. Mm. Kind of talking previously about sustainability, I've heard mm. you talk about disassembling buildings mm. as opposed to demolishing buildings. Can you just explain that to our listeners? Yeah, our industry, architecture, um, uh, leaves uh, its impact on, let's say, um, uh, climate change is, is substantial. Um, there's a lot of waste uh, in the building industry. Um, so 3XN, GXN started looking at uh, design for disassembly, which essentially means let's take those building blocks um, that we're using, um, the concrete panel um, or the alum aluminum uh, cladding system, and how can we actually design that uh, in a module uh, where every uh, piece that, that creates that component can be reused um, post life of the building. So 30 years from now when the building gets typically demolished, can we instead disassemble it and then mm -hmm. reuse every element within the design? So it's, it's about understanding the components that you're actually designing with in doing that, the, say the asset owner, the advantage is the asset owner has this uh, building after 30 years that still has value. It's not just being knocked down and the concrete going into road rubble. Um, so steel can be reused. The uh, aluminum and the screws, the stainless steel screws can be uh, reused. So it's just thinking next level um, design and construction. The industry isn't quite there yet. Um, the team in Copenhagen um, a few years ago actually started to work with a contractor um, to look at how we could begin to manufacture um, um, modular construction for mm. disassembly. Mm. Um, so as material resources become more scarce, it's gonna have, it'll be something that we have to think more and more of. When you said the, I think I misheard you, did you say the life of the building is 30 years? 30 to 50 years. Uh, is That's what crazy. Our, it is. Um, so you, always, you design around 50 years, typically. Um, you can start um, knocking down, taking it apart now, the one <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. Key Quarter. Um, well, that's what's nice about Key Quarter. It's essentially it's a tower a refurbishment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the core, right? The core was already there. Well, two-thirds of, the uh, of the existing tower we're reusing. Mm. Um, we've chopped off a third um, of the tower, so everything north of the core, perimeter column, slab, kept the core kept the perimeter columns um, uh, just south of that um, and then grafted on another 11 to 1200 square meters of floor plate. Um, so we essentially saved, we're doubling the square meters and we're reusing two thirds of the existing structure. Wow, did other people pitching for it want to demolish the whole thing? Some did, um, some demolished more of it, some got mm. rid of it completely. Um, we're in a Danish practice, so uh, we like to, um, follow instructions and follow directions. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it was a direction. It was, there was a choice. Um, 
we could look at keeping it or we could demolish it. Mm. Um, and we thought actually maintaining it, um, saving that embodied energy actually was uh, an important part of the design. It's really interesting. I went to um, AMP Capital. I can't remember what the building's called in front. That beautiful little... Oh, 33 Alfred. Yeah, 33 yeah. Alfred. And yeah. It was, it was it from the 50s? And I think it was the tallest building in Australia at one stage. For two weeks, from what I understand. <laughs> and, then, and then a project in Western Australia, um, it was slightly taller. So. Yeah. Six stories. Yeah, <laughs> what was right. it? Yeah. What was it, like 20 or something? It's 25 floors, 33 Alfred. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful building. Have That's you been stunning. to that, the, 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 the wood-paneled um, boardroom? I have. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like a Star Trek kind of set up. The round. Oh, great, great views as well. And the... Uh, what, I was com- what I was coming to was that the, on, the, on the top floor there's a, uh, like a not in a gallery but an exhibition mm-hmm. space which talked about the history of that area mm-hmm. and have you been up there have you seen how beautiful Circular Quay used to be in the early days it was, uh, it was like Venice yeah I have actually and I, I think um, the new developments trying to bring some of that life life back obviously yeah and it's quite incredible to think that if that hadn't It'd been a, it'd be a very different place if they hadn't knocked all those um, mm. old buildings down. Yeah, and so some of the buildings, um, you're, you're absolutely right. I think there's um, there's an interest in um, refurbishing heritage buildings now. Mm. Um, part of the competition for Key Quarter Tower was a master plan, um, which was Key Quarter Sydney, uh, this, the development between uh, um, Young Street and Loftus. Uh, Loftus. And there's a couple of heritage buildings uh, on site that are actually being refurbished, and that will be an active part mm. of that um, uh, urban design and public domain. Oh, Loftus Lane, yeah. yeah. There's some beautiful buildings there. I know yeah. we've done all the well, some of the and, and the housing, the apartments were sold like within two hours when they yeah, came onto the market. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what a great place to be based. What is it? What does the future hold for Three XN? It is it. Well, we're um, we're working. Um, Around the around the globe, actually, we um, uh, we just won a, a natural history museum in in, uh, in China. Um, so the team's working quite hard on that out of out of Copenhagen. Um, we're um, just going to continue, I think, to um, uh, try to work on the right projects. Um, in terms of three X in uh, Australia, three X in Oz, we're here to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going anywhere. Um, the office isn't going anywhere. That's good to hear. Thank you. Thanks. We like working with you guys. <laughs> so what I think we're just going to continue to, to um, uh, promote what we feel is important uh, in architecture and design, um, and that is to focus around the user experience, um, try to add value back in the design, whether that's a social value or a monetary value. Um, we, we're just going to continue to ask questions when we um, receive a, a project, a commission, or a competition, and and, and and try to find the right solution. Hmm. Are you working outside of Sydney? Any other projects? We've we have um, a large lobby design in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, we've started to pitch for a few uh, uh, projects um, outside of uh, of New South Wales. Haven't yet um, managed to win a project yet. Um, I think there's some hesitation um, on bringing in uh, a foreign. Uh, or con- what's considered a foreign architect um, into some of these other states. Um, I think once Key Quarter Tower actually uh, is finished in the next year, um, 
working outside of New South Wales, I think, will be something that mm. is going to be more common for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been here three years, but I, I'll still go up. And, and when I meet uh, a developer or um, a new office, and they'll say, when did you fly in? Um, so we're slowly getting the word out that 3XN mm. is around. Um, yeah. And um, opportunities are coming up mm-hmm. um, in Victoria uh, and uh, Queensland. Um, but we'll just keep keep pushing and um, growing the office organically. But it's not it's not our ambition to to grow into a large office. We just want to make sure we're working on the projects that we feel we mm. can add value to. And what about scale? Because obviously the projects I've seen, what you you've done are large scale. Um, do you work on granny flats? Do you work on <laughs> <laughs> do you work on people's homes and uh, ha, ha, we, you know what, what projects do you not do yeah we, we'd love to do uh, bespoke homes um, mm. it's not an opportunity we get that often uh, we've it's been a few in Copenhagen um, but we work at every scale I think when um, we don't have a style mm-hmm. um, we don't specialize in one thing we don't have um, a health department we don't have a residential department uh, or a commercial office department um, we have a design department and a delivery department, and we take um, our approach to all of those different uh, typologies. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's a small-scale lobby design in Melbourne or if it's a 100,000-square-meter tower um, in Sydney. We go through the same exact mm. design process, and that would be very similar to a, a bespoke home or a pavilion um, or anything else that you know, mm. Australia wants to throw at us. I'd, be, I'd love to see... Uh, some of the homes, I guess, back in Denmark, they've mm. done more examples of that. Yeah, there was, there was a couple um, about 15 years ago or so that uh, the office worked on. Um, but since then, again, 85% of our work's been uh, global. So mm. we're um, now a you, lot of bespoke homes. You brought this, we're going to wrap it up in a second, but you came in uh, looking incredibly suave, but you also brought this... <laughs> You brought this goddamn book, which which I should have been reading for days before. It's the size of my table, 3XN and GXN, mm-hmm. Buildings Beyond Buildings, published by the, the Danish Architectural Press. Mm-hmm. Has that just come out? came out a couple of months ago. It looks like 500 pages, 400 pages. About that, actually. It's, it's a um, big book. I it's cannot a heavy book wait. to carry around, Vince. How much do I owe you for that? Oh, this is payment enough. <laughs> How do people get hold of it if they want to buy it? Or can they go buy on, Yeah, you can go on the um, Danish Architectural Press website and uh, purchase it there. Yeah, that's cool. Or if, if you, know, you want to throw a project our way, then I can just give you a book. Contact Fred direct. That's right, that's right. Make sure it's a real project, though. <laughs> you got to watch people these days. Who's been your biggest influence, or what has been your biggest influence in your career? I'm not necessarily influenced uh, by, by one thing. Uh, um, you know, work ethic incredibly long hours, probably comes from my, my parents, but um, mm-hmm. I've learned something from each, um, each firm that I've worked for, um, each person I've studied uh, with or, or under. Um, I'd say uh, Farshid Musavi uh, had a big influence uh, on, on, on my life uh, in terms of my um, um, architectural education, um, designing around those things um, uh, that uh, are needed or um, trying to uh, uh, say accentuate some of those things. Um, one of my first jobs, um, the partner gave me way too much uh, responsibility, I think, um, uh, in hindsight. Um, but uh, you learn to jump in the deep end and just go for it. Um, mm. So that influenced uh, my life. Uh, mm. Kim, um, 
founding partner of 3XN. I think his focus on this um, user experience, human-centric design, also um, designing around those things that we need around um, constraints, parameters, just a common sense approach to design, mm-hmm. um, but producing more than just a solution, mm. uh, more than what was just asked. I think all of those uh, people, situations have, have uh, influenced me. Um, you've done so much in your life. I mean, you've traveled a hell of a lot. And it sounds to me like you've been someone who's just put 110% plus into mm. everything you do. Have you designed your life or has life just happened to you? I mean, you sound like you have a, a bigger plan. Yeah, it's, have I designed my life? Maybe, um, maybe unintentionally. Um, maybe I should design it intentionally. But um, there's, a, there's a couple of things. Um, uh, one of my studio instructors, uh, Alejandro Aravena, uh, once said that... Um, Designs about choice. Some choose better than others. Mm. Um, and so I suppose that I've chosen a certain path uh, that's led me to work on projects that uh, seemed interesting. Maybe an, an another aspect of designing one's life. Um, sometime about an, when I was an undergrad, I stopped thinking of an experience as a good or bad experience, mm-hmm. just an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in a way how we approach design uh, as well. You you can't judge things too quickly. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of go through the process and see where it takes you. So mm-hmm. in that sense, maybe I've, I've uh, designed my life. Mm. But you've known, you've known when it's been kind of uncomfortable or you need to m- make a move or you know, change relationships and things like that. Yeah, you, uh, I think I've realized when I've... There's a, moment, there's a moment in everyone's life where you have to uh, evaluate a situation, right? You go through it and you evaluate and you make a choice. Um, do you want to do the same thing that you were doing for the last mm. five years or do you want to um, try something new? Mm. Um, do you want to continue to grow and develop? Um, so in that sense, so those choices that one makes actually kind of leads them in the path uh, uh, um, that, they're, that they're on now. It's interesting you say that because I, I, I obviously I agree making that choice, but... You make that choice. I personally, I'm very rarely 100% sure that that choice is right. Yeah. Do you feel that? Do you feel like you're 80% or do you ever go, oh my God, what am I doing? That's what that, I'm kind of missing that it's, it's place, a pro- person or, or whatever. Yeah, well, you, you naturally, I think you naturally do that. But um, uh, I look at it as it, it's, it's an experience. I want to, let's, let's try it. Let's keep pushing. Let's see where it takes us. Mm. Uh, and you get to a point and then you have to reevaluate um, and that's very similar to the design process. You, you go with an idea for a while, see where it takes you. If it, if it doesn't um, take you in a direction that you think you're, it, it's adding you know, value back in the project or yourself, then, then you, you try another path. Mm. Well, it's been really cool catching up with you, Fred. Australia is definitely a better place for you, for you being here. So <laughs> thank you for persevering. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the second episode of From Lego to Skyscrapers, The Life of an Architect with 3XN partner Fred Holt. Be sure to tune in to the next episode where I'll be speaking with Gianluca Rakana, director of Zaha Hadid's office in London. We're talking about his journey starting out with Zaha Hadid in the early days and what goes into designing some of the most iconic buildings in the world. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about designing your life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe.